If you would, grab a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We'll be spending our time in this part of the Bible this morning, Matthew chapter 4. As we enter into the part of our worship where we open the Bible and study from it. So good to see you this morning. We have visitors with us. Thank you so much for being here. We want you to feel welcome. We're glad to see you. I also want to say before I get started, uh, remind the parents of high school and junior high children and high school and junior high, did I say children? High school and junior high young men and women. Uh, You are coming to my house this afternoon at 5 o'clock. We're going to have our Devo. Uh, You might not have realized that you are coming, but you are. So I wanted to remind you that, no, if, uh, if uh, you're able, we'd love to have you guys uh, for 5 o'clock for our, our monthly devotional. Matthew chapter 4, I want to begin in verse 1. Matthew 4 and verse 1, the text says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus is soon to begin his ministry. He has just been baptized by John the Baptist. And as he did, a voice came from heaven that said, This is my son. But there appears to be something that has to be done before he can begin his ministry. He goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It is a confrontation. We might say it is the showdown of showdowns. You have God in the flesh, God's son here on earth in the form of a man, and he is going to take on Satan. We get the sense, at least I do, that this had to happen. For some reason. Maybe it's that Satan can't keep himself hidden or that he knows that Jesus is there. He has to become more overt in his attempts to tempt him. Or maybe it's just that he has to show, Jesus has to show something before he can truly begin this great work that he is truly committed to the Father. But whatever we say about it, we have a showdown in Matthew chapter 4. And I want to spend some time examining this to understand just what's going on as Satan and Jesus do battle and then how that relates to how we do battle with Satan. And so what we're going to talk about is what we're going to call Satan's whispers to Jesus, the things that Satan is trying to appeal to Jesus with, and how Jesus refutes those temptations and shows his commitment to the Father. Now I want to say before we dive into this passage, this passage requires some humility. Because there are things going on here that I do not fully grasp, and you do not either. There are things that have to do with Jesus and his nature, There are things that have to do with Satan and what Satan is thinking. And sometimes we can, as we think about things like this, get kind of ahead of ourselves and begin to think that we know things that are not clearly stated in the text. For example, as I studied this lesson, I found this commentator who said, quote, Since the body of Jesus was wholly unaffected by sin, its power of enduring abstinence from food by far exceeds ours. Did you know that? I didn't know that, that somehow because Jesus had this special body that was unaffected by sin, it could go longer without food. The text doesn't say that. That's just something some guy came up with. And if we're just going to come up with things, then we can just throw the Bible away. But instead, we need to have a posture of humility that says, I'm going to try to read and understand what I get here. But at the end of it all, I want to warn you, we're still going to have some mystery surrounding this. And so I'm going to do the best I can to explain what I believe is going on as Jesus and Satan do battle. And I believe it's a consistent picture that goes throughout the life of Jesus. So let's begin just by reading here, Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. Let's read this first temptation. Matthew 4 and verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So I believe the first whisper Satan gives to Jesus is this one. Are you really the son? Are you really the son? 
So in verse 1, it says that Jesus was led up by the Spirit. And that means that this is part of his mission. The Spirit is in charge. The Spirit is directing Jesus. And somehow this facing of Satan is required by God. God is expecting Jesus to go through with this. In verse 2 it says, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Mark and Luke's accounts indicate that he was being tempted throughout those 40 days. Here Jesus says the main thrust of the temptation, Matthew says the main thrust of the temptation comes after the 40 days of fasting. He is hungry. And so Satan is going to use that fast and that physical weakness against him. So verse 3 The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Please remember that at the end of chapter 3, look in chapter 3 and verse 17, it says, A voice came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God has declared Jesus as the Son. And what is the first thing Satan says in verse 3? If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So Satan is calling into question what has just been loudly affirmed by a voice from heaven. And you hear in that tone, the same tone you hear from Satan throughout the Bible. Do you remember back in the garden? It's Satan who says, did God really say to you, you can't eat of that tree? Or he says to to God about Job, does Job serve God for nothing? Stretch out your hand and he'll curse you. It is the accusation tone. If you are the Son of God, if you really are who you claim to be, prove yourself. Show me. And so he challenges Jesus to prove something that they both knew. And he says in verse 3, command these stones to become loaves of bread. So he knows Jesus is hungry. He knows Jesus has the ability to do this. He could turn these stones into bread and kill two birds with one stone. You prove you're the Son of God and you can cure your hunger. It's also a sinister challenge because at this stage in Jesus' ministry, he has worked no miracles. This would be his first. His first miracle then would be purely for himself. Oh, also to prove a point to Satan. It would be a miracle that had no benefit for anyone except him. And so Satan attempts to distract Jesus from the great work that he's doing, the work that he is here on earth to do about redeeming mankind, and instead focus on your own needs and your own hunger and do something to show me I'm wrong. So verse 4, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes Scripture. It is Scripture that affirms that for Jesus... God and God's word alone are what are going to sustain him. I trust God to take care of me, and I don't need to take matters into my own hands. The passage Jesus quotes comes from Deuteronomy chapter 8, where Moses is describing how the children of Israel were led in the wilderness. And it says this, Deuteronomy 8.3, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man, man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That should say man and not many. So you don't have to go to Deuteronomy and check that. That's wrong. So the point here, though, it, it, it mirrors Jesus' experience. He let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. So God sustained the children of Israel even though they were hungry. And Jesus is saying, I'm sustained even though I'm hungry. And God's going to provide for me even though I'm hungry now. Because man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The Lord is the sustainer, not me. And I'm not going to take matters into my own hands. Jesus declares, 
I don't need your temptation, Satan. I don't need to provide for myself. So he is going to live on God's side and not fall into Satan's trap. The question that you might have, the question that I've had for years about this text, is, is why would that be wrong? Why would it be wrong for Jesus to use his power to make bread when he's hungry? And the best I can come up with is this. Jesus sees this as a failure to trust in God's ability to provide. He is saying God has already provided and God will provide. I'm not going to have to provide for me. And using God's power in order to save himself and help himself, in his view, would be to not trust God. But I also can't help but see this in the context of Jesus' mission. That Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost. And Jesus' miracles are used to bring faith and to show people the importance of faith in him and faith in the Father. And this miracle would have nothing to do with any of that. It would be completely out of character, and it would be the first miracle Jesus had worked. And so it appears to me that Jesus says, that's just not what I'm doing, and God has a plan that is better than what you're suggesting. So Satan says, are you really the son? Prove it. And Jesus decides not to answer Satan's question. The second question, Satan whispers to Jesus, do you really trust God? Matthew chapter 4 and verse 5. Matthew 4 and verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So they go to the highest point of the temple, it says in verse 5. We're out of the desert context now. We're in the city. And there in the highest point in the temple, there are surely people all around that would have been able to see if Jesus were to do this, there would have been a great crowd. But you have to admit that the devil is extremely clever in this temptation because he takes what happened in the first temptation and then twists it. Look at verse 6. In verse 6 he says, If you are the Son of God, as if that's still an open question, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, you trust God, do you? Prove it. You know, you, you talked about in that first one, oh, you're just going to live by God and the, the, the word of God. Well, let me tell you some words God said. God said he will catch you when you fall. God said he won't let your foot be hurt. So, do you believe him? You say you trust God? Prove it. Jump off the temple and make God save you. Let's see how much you really believe. Sometimes there is a temptation to know for certain that God is real, to know for certain that the promises of the Bible are real, and there is a desire that maybe we should do something outlandish, something amazing that would finally prove for once and for all that God really is who he says he is. That is the idea behind the sign image in the New Testament. Show us a great sign. And this would be an incredible sign, wouldn't it? Jesus jumping off the temple. Who trusts God more than that guy? He jumped off the temple. And who has a better connection to God than that guy? I mean, after all, God saved him. The angels saved him. We should also notice in passing here that Satan is extremely proficient and slick in his use of Scripture. That he knows exactly where to go. As soon as Jesus says, no, I'm going to trust God, he says, oh, well, let me tell you something else God says. And I'd just like to suggest to you that it's very unlikely that Satan has lost the ability to use Scripture in a twisted way like this. Verse 7, 
Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again it is written, because Jesus believes Scripture explains Scripture. And that you can't just take one Scripture and use it without considering other passages that talk about similar things. And this is, in some ways, a reference to how we need to understand the Bible today. But he is saying, your whole situation, Satan, needs to be understood in light of a principle. And this passage also comes from Deuteronomy. That is the passage he quotes in verse 7, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The context of that passage in Deuteronomy is just after the children of Israel have come out, and they come out into the desert, and they don't have water, and they ask God to provide them water. They test God, and the question that is recorded is the question, is the Lord among us or not? That's the question of testing. God, where are you? If you were here, we wouldn't have a need for water. You would provide for us. So it's a similar question to what Satan is saying. If you are the Son of God, prove it. God, if you're really with us, prove it. Give us some evidence. And so they call on God. Prove yourself. And Jesus says, when you call on God, show yourself, you are testing God. And you shall not put the Lord your God to the test the way they did there. Jesus says, that principle is the one I'm going to live by. And he says, when I hear you, Satan, tell me to throw, off, throw myself off the temple and somebody's going to catch me, I would be testing God. I would be telling God what to do instead of having God tell me what to do. Instead of following, I would be the boss. The problem then is not that God wouldn't help Jesus. The problem is what that would mean about their relationship. It would mean Jesus is calling the shots, not the Father. And that is not the way Jesus lives. He lives by the will of the Father. And he wants Satan to know that. He is not going to set the agenda for the Father. He is not going to boss the Father around. He's not going to say, save me at this point, and at this point I'm going to jump off the temple now. I think that's best. He is instead going to trust the Father. But testing God would be the opposite of trust. And it's very interesting to me that Satan uses the image of trust to try to convince Jesus to do the opposite of trusting him, to instead to test him and to try to push God into doing something that was his will. So Satan's second whisper to Jesus, do you really trust God? And Jesus says, I'm still not going to do what you say, Satan. And the third whisper Satan has to Jesus is, is there an easier way? Look in Matthew 4, beginning in verse 8. Matthew 4 and verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So in verse 8, it says that he took him on a high mountain and showed him all the world's kingdoms and their glory. Now that would be an impressive sight. You just think about America. You think about the trappings of our government. The impressive buildings, you know, the things that are amazing things about America. You think about the White House, I'm thinking maybe the Washington Monument, and the Statue of Liberty and those kinds of things. And you put all the, the fancy houses and all the impressive power that people in our nation have. And then you say, well, that's just America. Think about all the world and all the amazing things there are to see in the world. All the power, all the glory of all the world. And somehow Jesus has shown all of this all at once. And he says in sort of a generous way in verse 9, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. 
God has given me all these kingdoms, he says in another place. All these things have been given to me or delivered to me, and I give them to who I will. And so he offers Jesus everything that there is in terms of earthly power. Now, I do think we have to take issue with Satan's claim that he had the authority to give all of this. We learn from Daniel, for example, that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men, and he sets over it whomever he chooses. That God is the one who is really in charge of all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. But we do understand from Scripture that Satan has a a sphere of influence and that Satan has a power. Satan has a kingdom. And so, I still come out of all of that discussion believing that Satan is writing a check he can't cash here by saying, I'll give you everything in the world. But it is here that I believe, and and you may take issue with me on this, and that's fine, but I'm going to tell you what I believe is going on in this text. I believe that Satan begins here a narrative that will continue until Jesus' death. And that narrative is that Jesus stands to inherit, as he says in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says, after his crucifixion. That Jesus is going to be the king of kings. And Satan here at the very beginning offers him this. But he offers it to him without all the pain, without all the humiliation of the cross and the road to the cross, without living like a poor Galilean carpenter for so long. And just says, here, this would be easy. All you have to do is submit to me. I've got all this. I'll just give it all to you. And I believe the temptation, as I put on the board, is this question. Is there an easier way? Because that would be easier. To get to the end where you have all authority, but without having to go through the pain of it. And Jesus, of course, sees through that attempt to tempt him. In verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. The be gone there is definitive. It's time for this to end. Jesus is done. He takes his eyes off the offer, the thing that's before his eyes, and instead he says, wait a minute, you're telling me to worship Satan. Whoa, whoa. You only worship God. Him only shall you serve. That quotation, by the way, in verse 10, is also from Deuteronomy. So if you're scoring at home, Jesus has successfully refuted Satan using only Deuteronomy, which is impressive in itself. Verse 11 says, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Luke says that he departed from him until an opportune time. And I believe that one of the most important things about this story is for us to remember this is not the end of Jesus being tempted by Satan. This is the beginning. And it seems to me that these three questions, are you really the son? Do you really trust God? Is there an easier way? Continue right up until his death. Satan not only appeals to him directly, but he appeals to him through those around Jesus, continually throwing these same temptations, these same whispers at Jesus. Can I show you some of those? Just look on the board here with me. Matthew 12 and verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees asked him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Are you really the son? Prove it. Prove it. We want to see a sign. Do you hear the same whisper? If you're the Son of God, cause these 
stones to become loaves of bread. We, we want to see a sign from you. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and to test him. This is Matthew 16. They asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. He repeats himself. Again, they come to him asking, show us a sign. Always Satan is challenging Jesus. Until the very end, where the people around the cross say, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, prove it. Satan is here. Satan is calling to Jesus, even as he hangs on the cross, saying, are you really the Son? Would God's Son suffer like this? Over and over again, Satan is challenging Jesus to let somebody else call the shots. Take matters into your own hands. Do what the people are saying. There's a better way. You're not really the Son. Over and over again, Satan asks this question. Do you really trust God? Do you really trust God? Do something outrageous and prove that God really approves of you. Jesus says this, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Matthew 26, 53. Don't you think that was part of Satan's appeal? Just like jump off the temple and they'll all catch you? Here, just call for them. Nobody can stand before the angelic army. Are you kidding? Come on, Jesus. Do you really trust God? Then call on God for help. And again, listen for Satan's voice as Jesus hangs on the cross. As the people around him say this, He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. You trust in God, Jesus. Do you really trust in God? Throw yourself off this temple. Do you really trust in God? Call down these angels. Do you really trust in God? Let God deliver you. Come down from the cross and we'll believe in you. Is there an easier way? I don't think Satan stopped with this question either. In John 6 and verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. People are ready to make him king by force. Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't that be easier than the way of pain and suffering and death? To just make him king. The people wanted it. And again, listen to Jesus. Listen to Satan while Jesus is on the cross. Satan saying, He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. Is there an easier way? Sure. Just come down from the cross. We'll believe. I believe this is in Jesus when he prays in the garden. Father, if you will, let this cup pass from me. That at all times, Satan is sitting there saying to Jesus... Are you really the son? Do you really trust God? Is there an easier way? And the amazing thing is that every time Jesus says, I will not give in to Satan and his will. So, what do we learn from all of this? I want to point out that I believe we learned three things about Satan that are going to help us because you and I have battles with Satan. They're going to look different from what Jesus did with Satan. Satan. 
Because we don't have the power to turn stones into bread. Because He doesn't show us all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. Because our temptations are a bit different and yet we deal with the same tempter. Did I say three? I want to show you four things about Satan. First, Satan uses particular temptations. When I use the word particular, what I mean is... Satan's temptations are not cookie cutters. They are especially tailored to each one of us. And so when Jesus is tempted, he is not tempted with the things I'm tempted by because Jesus is very different from me in terms of his power and in terms of his focus. But they were specific to his unique role. And Satan is going to use things to tempt you and me that are tailored to our particular propensities and desires, perhaps even our background our circumstances, Satan is going to craft a plan for us. At times we feel a sense of condescension about temptation. When we look at someone and we say, you know what, I don't understand somebody who would struggle with drinking. That's just not my struggle. I don't understand someone who would have a problem with pornography. That's just not my struggle. I don't understand someone who would have trouble disciplining their tongue. That's just not my struggle. And what this is teaching us is, That's because you have your struggles. And we might not understand. And we might not feel exactly what it's like for other people. And yet we still need to be humble enough to see that we're going to be tempted by Satan ourselves. And not to be condescending toward others. Satan is after you too. If Satan is going to shoot for Jesus, he's probably going to shoot for us too. Second... Satan is persistent. Satan did not give up on Jesus just because he resisted. He kept going. And the reason I've shown you all those quotes from after the temptation of Jesus is because I want you to see this was not a one-time thing. I believe sometimes we get a mistaken view of temptation from the scene in Matthew 4 where we believe that what this is is a formal setting where Satan comes to us formally and says, all right, now I present you this temptation. And instead, it's just It's just people who continually talk to us and offer us, try to convince us, whisper in our ears. Satan is persistent. Satan used the people around Jesus. Satan used Peter, who on several occasions Jesus said, get behind me, Satan, when he was speaking to. Satan used the people around Jesus on the cross. He used the crowds and the chief priests to try to challenge Jesus. So when you and I battle Satan, That means that you and I need to be concerned about both immediate dangers and about long-term solutions. That I need to figure out how to win today in my battle against Satan. But I also need to be thinking about what's going on in me and how am I going to do better tomorrow and the next day? How am I growing? What's going to happen in the future? Because Satan is not going to give up. Third, Satan attacks my relationship with God. In each of these, the the threat is to Jesus tie to the Father, his relationship to the Father. Do you notice that? Do you really trust that God's got the best plan in mind? Do you really believe in God, willing to jump off the temple for him? Do you really think that God's way is the best way, or might there be an easier way? Each time, the threat is, Jesus, just how much can you trust the Father? And Satan always aims at our ability to trust God. Did God really say, you shall not eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden? 
or you'll die. You will not surely die. Satan always attacks our trust in God and our relationship with Him. And Satan tries to get me to look away from disobedience. That's the amazing thing about this. To put something in front of us that wows us like Jesus with those kingdoms of the world and all their glory. To put Jesus on the temple and say, here it is. Here's the temptation. And in the middle, while we're looking at that and we're wowed by it, he slips the sin in there. You can have all this if you worship me. Slipped in very subtly. Satan tries to get me to focus on what I want. To think about how great it will be if I get it. Think about all the things I could do with it if I finally had it. To think about how all the people would be so, uh, I would praise me and be in awe of me if I were to just jump off this temple. He tries to get me to look away from disobedience. And there is discipline required to be able to hear and see Satan is behind this. So what do we learn about victory over Satan? Jesus teaches us there is victory in trusting God. Victory in trust. When you trust God, Satan's claims lose all their charm. They become absurd. Do you notice that in Jesus' story? It's as if Jesus kind of just holds Satan at bay. Oh, come on, Satan. Uh, bread's not that important. Man doesn't live by bread alone. Oh, come on, Satan. I'm not going to test God. Oh, come on, Satan. I don't worship you. You see, when we trust God and we really believe that God has our best interests at heart and that what God has said I need to do and be is what I need to do and be, when that trust is there, Satan's attempts lose their power. There is victory in trust. There is victory in the Word. Jesus quotes and quotes the Bible to Satan. Do you know why? It is not that Jesus is trying to teach Satan. You know, someday if I just hammer Satan with enough verses, he'll change. This is not a conversion. This is a defense. And I want to stress to you, brothers and sisters, this is why we study the Bible. We study the Bible so that when the time comes where we are not sure whether something is right or wrong, we know where to go. We know what God has said. When someone wants to try to use the Bible in a way to get us to do something wrong, we know how to say, oh no, it's written again, just like Jesus did. That's why we use the Bible. That's why we study the Bible. And we need to stress this. You've heard me say this before. You'll hear me say it now, and I'll probably say it again in the future. We don't study the Bible just to memorize facts. We don't study the Bible just so we can know how many camels Solomon had. We study the Bible so that we can know how to beat Satan. So that we know what's right and wrong and so that we know that God who has written the Bible, that we can trust him in situations that are real. That's why we study. There is victory here. And Jesus shows us, even though he wrote that word, he said there is a time to quote it because I'm going to live by it. That's his dedication in the moment to beat Satan. And there is victory in resistance. Victory in resistance. You know, Scripture promises... That when we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. We have to want to do right and fight back. And I believe the promise there, combined with the promise that there is always a way of escape, that we're never tempted beyond what we are able to, to resist, means that God is going to 
bless us and help us when we're willing to fight the temptation. But if we become so enamored with what Satan is offering us, and we become so enamored with the things that we want, that we're not going to listen to God, and we refuse to fight, we lay down our arms, there is no victory there. Christians must fight back. And remember that just because I want to do something that Satan is offering doesn't mean I have to. There is victory in resistance. I am so thankful that God preserved this story. It is a fascinating story to me. I imagine that I probably just raised more questions for you. That's okay. But I want to urge each one of us to see that we are in a regular battle with Satan who is attempting to convince us not to follow God and not to trust His Word and that we need to resist. Would you pray with me about that? Oh God, our Father, we are so thankful to You. We're thankful for this time that we've had together. We're thankful for Your Word that You have revealed to us and preserved for us so that we can open it and know Your mind. We're thankful for our Savior, Jesus, who came and lived as one of us, as a man, who came and fought Satan as we do, And yet, Father, he was victorious where we have not been. That he fought Satan, yet he was without sin. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of your son. That you were willing to send him. That you were willing to watch him and preserve him as he went through all these difficulties. And that now you have exalted him. And now you have reached out to us through him. Father, I pray for each one of us in this room this morning, each one of us that's listening, that's thinking about our own lives. Because each one of us, Father, has a battle with Satan. Each one of us, Father, has desires that we struggle to control, that Satan uses to appeal to us and try to lead us away from you. Father, we ask for stronger faith, for deeper courage, for more knowledge of your word so that we can be prepared to resist. And Father, we ask for your presence with us so that we can fight temptation because we believe in you and we love you and we want to live with you forever. I pray your blessings on this church as we try to influence one another, as we confess to one another that we sometimes fall short of your standards and your will. And yet we help one another to repent, to come back to you, and to again live in a way that honors you. I pray that you'll help us, Father, to be a help to one another in times of temptation. We thank you for this time together, and most of all, for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. might be someone here this morning who needs to respond to the gospel, who is ready for the first time to turn away from a life of sin and to follow Jesus. Jesus died, as we talked about the cross. He refused to come down. He followed his Father's will to the very end so that his blood could be shed and through it we could be forgiven. And if you're here this morning in need of that forgiveness because of something you've done, whether you've never been a Christian, you're ready to be baptized into Christ, whether you are a Christian and you need to confess to your brothers and sisters something you've done, ask for us to pray with you. If there is any need that you have, please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.